Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada's ambassador to China is stepping down just as Ottawa is facing pressure to join the diplomatic boycott at the Beijing Olympics. When will the government decide if it's going to join? And now that Canada has new travel restrictions right before the busy holiday season, how does the Canadian Airport Council feel about the changes? The federal government is uh, getting ready to hand over thousands of previously undisclosed residential school documents to the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation. What took them so long? And Merck Canada has announced plans to manufacture its oral antiviral COVID-19 drug in Canada for global distribution. Business professor Marvin Ryder will join us to talk about those implications. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Canada-China relations, always a big deal, of course, especially in light of the incarceration of the two Michaels and uh, the Huawei situation. Uh, it's taking on a bit of a different tone, though, because of what's happening, uh, not just because of the possible diplomatic boycott with the Olympics, uh, but also the news uh, more recently uh, about uh, Dominic Barton, Canada's ambassador to China, putting in his resignation. Prime Minister Trudeau has accepted uh, Dominic Barton's resignation with what he calls both gratitude and respect. Don Kelly has details. Barton will step down at the end of the month after two years in which he was praised for helping secure the release of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, but criticized for strongly pushing closer trade ties with Beijing. Trudeau says Barton worked tirelessly to win the release of the two Michaels, and that thanks to his leadership and skilled diplomatic approach, both men are back home with their families. The Prime Minister is praising Barton for helping shape Canada's ties and priorities with China, saying Ottawa's now better positioned to manage the relationship and achieve its diplomatic objectives. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press. So what are the ramifications of this? Uh, the re- reaction's been fast and furious, i got to tell you, about uh, the uh, resignation. And uh, we want to get into the boycott situation, too. Joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us today. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Let's uh, maybe start off with Dominic Barton and the resignation, which uh, I, I guess surprised some people. Although, uh, I think as you and I have talked about in the past, there's been a, a hue and cry in many, many circles uh, for this guy to step aside anyway. There's some suggesting there was a conflict of interest. Some are questioning his uh, involvement, shall we say, in the release of the two Michaels. Uh, did this catch you off guard or was this something you expected? Um, I mean, it wasn't a huge surprise. He seemed, when he, was, when he would talk about his own appointment, he talked about the securing the release of the two Michaels as his core objective. And you got the sense when Trudeau appointed him that it was, you know, kind of to, to address that situation. And so I know there's a lot of conversation about what his role was in that and what this, what the other factors were as well. But it seemed like if, if that was what he had identified publicly as his core mission and the core mission has been achieved, then not a huge surprise for him to step aside. And we should up front, of course, mention that he's the prime minister likes this guy. I mean, it was his appointment. Oh, yeah. uh, he, he, you know, replaced well, John McCallum, who had some concerns and some people considered a conflict of interest uh, when he had the appointment. But the criticism and Terry Glavin, of course, in the National uh, Post uh, has been very critical of him. And he's been tweeting about this and saying, well, it's about time uh, this guy had to go anyway. Uh, suggesting that he was putting his uh, corporate buddies ahead of uh, the the rule wall of an ambassador here, which is to, to develop relationships between the two countries. Fair criticism? I mean, I think, like, it's going to be a tough situation for anyone because the circumstances of our relationship with China are so, 
unusual and fraught, and they have been for a long time, right? The question of how, as you know, a, a middle power, we can form a relationship with a growing superpower who economically, you know, is absolutely, you know, pr present in our lives and becoming more, more all the time, but at the same time has a human rights record that we have to stand up to in order to be true to our own principles. And so governments have for decades been trying to balance the relationship with China and balance these two, you know, what is the right trade relationship and what is it, what are we kind of stuck with at the same time as we're trying to um, hold firm with respect to human rights. And so for him, he definitely seemed to be somebody who like he was out front about how we need more trade with China. We need to yeah. be developing that side of the relationship. But um, yeah, like he obviously faced a lot of questions around why he held that position and whether he was he was the right person from a diplomatic perspective to be pursuing that relationship. Well, especially because uh, with the release of the two Michaels, and, and we're all grateful, of course, that that happened, the message from Barton seemed to be, okay, we've got the two Michaels back. All right, now back to business as usual. Let's develop some trade relationships. Uh, as if, well, you know, my work here is done. Let's just uh, move on. Yeah. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that I think there are still over 100 Canadians that are incarcerated in Chinese jails uh, and suggesting that, well, maybe the human rights issue is a little more important than Mr. Barton seems to think it is. That, that's the criticism I heard from a lot of circles. Oh, yeah. And, and 100%. Like, I mean, as you say, it, it's not like, okay, everything's fine now. There are many you know, people still detained there. And the fact that the two Michaels came home was, you know, perhaps, you know, it, it must have been it's just to some extent the result of diplomatic relationships and efforts mm -hmm. on the part of, you know, teams here in the US, you know, like that there was there was some work being done there for sure. But there's also the situation with um, Meng Wanzhou and her release and the, the almost, you know, exact timing of once she's on a plane, they're on a plane too. And, you know, the, as, as the public looking on, we're never going to know every single detail, but you know, there's lots to unpack there. And so I think as, as you say, like both uh, the relationship doesn't, doesn't automatically return to some kind of positive. It wasn't, it wasn't that anyway, it's a lot more complicated than that. But the fact that the two Michaels are home, that's just one piece. And the fact that they were detained for so long, and, you know, we only got them out once Meng Wanzhou was sent home, too. And so it's not like that. Tr that trust is is not there. Right. And so now we have to think about things like the Olympics. We have to think about things like the, the 5G. And so there's only more questions and circumstances that have to be solved at this point. Like, you know, and so from from that perspective, Barton's departure allows an opening for someone else to come in and see how Canada wants to try to cast this relationship going forward. Well, let's talk about the, uh, this is really a threesome here, because you can talk about Canada and China, but let's, you got to put the U.S. into this conversation as well. Uh, I'm hearing that the Biden administration were not very fond of Mr. Barton uh, because of his desire to, to, to create stronger relationships uh, between, Can or between Canada, that's right, and China. Uh, well, you know, the Biden administration themselves, of course, are preaching right now a hard line on China because of human rights violations. Uh, what are you hearing about that? That, that? that this is not necessarily done to placate the United States, but they were cognizant of the fact uh, that they would rather somebody else was in that role. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. We we know that Barton was pushing for more trade with China, and we know that the U.S. 
is, you know, as a superpower, they're in a very different situation than we are. And I think they're, you know, they're grappling with the rise of China in a very different way. I think even, you know, a a number of people have written over the past couple of weeks, Canada's relationship with the U.S. is, I would say, it's fair to say, under strain right now. It's hard for us to get their attention. They're not looking up here. (laughs) They're not focused on us like we're focused on them. They're focused on China. And they're, to the extent that they care what we're doing, they're looking for us to roll out a plan and an, you know, a kind of complete framework about how we're, we plan to deal with China going forward. Their, their focus is going to be on working with allies to develop a much tougher stance on China globally so that all of the risks can be managed. And the only way to do it is for allies to work together. And so they're wondering where Canada is you know, on, that, on, that side, on that scale and how we're going to be working towards um, you know, managing China's place in the world with allies and how we're going to do that. And so I think, yeah, like it, that's going to be a key part of this. It's going to be a key step in our relationship with the U.S. to indicate who is who this diplomat is going to be. The speech on the throne gives some indication that we're looking to diversify relationships and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to give this total focus on China sort of thing. But we'll, that that's an open question at this point. It's There's going to be a lot of eyes looking at who this new appointment is going to be. Well, exactly. And, and forgive me in, in advance, by the way, for the Godfather uh, an analogy here. Uh, but are we looking for a wartime counselor here because of the relationship mm. that, that we're anticipating? I wonder. Yeah. Like, I mean, somebody, it seems to me, it's interesting too, like we're in, we're in an interesting spot where there's also a new foreign affairs minister. Um, You know, the government is in a new term now. And even though it's much, you know, as we've talked about a return of, of the old, of what we had before, there's still sort of a moment of renewal here. And so I wonder if the person that they're going to go with is someone who, yeah, like his is just very, you know, tough line, tough negotiator, that sort of thing. Because not just Mr. Barton, but even as I say, Mr. John McCallum, the former cabinet minister who was a predecessor, uh, that considered to be soft on China for a variety of reasons. But we, yeah. we, we could be here until noon talking about those. But <laughs> I'm just wondering if there's going to be a change in direction. And maybe uh, to segue into, uh, I, I guess, you know, what's going to happen at the Olympics. Uh, you know, when you look at what the United States announced yesterday about this diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, uh, and they're saying, okay, who's with us? And I mean, you yeah. know, uh, they're looking right up north of the border and say, well, and, and yeah. typically, of course, doctor, we got the reaction from the Canadian government. Well, we're continuing to monitor this. We're going to talk with our allies, you know, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I think the Americans are looking for some action and, and saying, you know, you either, I don't want to pull the George Bush on them, but you're either with us or against us on this. Oh, 100%, right? And that's a reality of international relations and relationships between allies. At a certain point, it, you know, you, you've you got to decide what side of something you're on. And Canada seems to be just dragging its feet on this stuff and not being clear about what the, what the plan is. And not only just for the Olympics, but also in terms of the 5G network, like yeah. other allies have put their themselves out on the line and said, this is what we're doing. What the hell is Canada waiting for? And so there's a lot of frustration, I think, about just where we are on the question. And you can only sort of tread water for so long. The Olympics are not that far away. These are issues that are going to be, you know, we need some closure on those things. We need some direction on those things. And I mean, maybe the government has been waiting for this, that if they've known that Barton is going to step aside and they're positioning for the right person to come in. And then once that happens, we're going to see, you know, boom, boom decisions on these things. But I think at this point, you know, there's, there's not a lot of, of positive around Canada continuing to be non-committal and you know we're still talking we're still discussing what what is left (laughs) like to you know you've got some facts in front of you here and other you know what do we do now that the u.s has indicated clearly you know that it's it's pursuing the diplomatic boycott are really are we really going to not do that but now they've got aaron o'toole calling for it so they you know 
they've they've got some pressure going on at home too. Well, not just Darren O'Toole, uh, but even the NDP critic, of course, is on side with us and saying this yeah. is something that we need to do. And, and I'm wondering if this is part of a, a, a bigger picture here, though, Doctor, and that's raising some concerns, not just with the U.S. administration, but even with our, our NATO allies, uh, this vacillation on, on issues uh, where we're, you know, we should be taking a stand on this. I mean, you know, the, the cliche here is, you know, if you don't stand for something, you stand for nothing. And, and we're, we're monitoring a whole lot of stuff here. Uh, but we're not yeah. taking a side. And, and I guess, especially with the way that China has emerged here, I mean, a lot of the stuff that they did in their own borders was rather clandestine. Uh, they, they make no mistake and, and no bones about the fact, yeah, this is what we're doing. Uh, and and this is why. And this is what we're doing to the, to the pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. And this is what we're doing to the Uyghurs. And on and on it goes. And uh, Canada keeps saying, well, yeah, we're going to study this. I, I think I think right now the Biden administration and probably other NATO allies is saying, you know, what are you going to do here? I mean, like, it's about time you guys get off the fence and made a decision here. And that's it. And again, because we're not um, we're not a superpower, we're not a country that's going to be changing other countries' minds. And so when people are waiting for us to make up our mind, it's not because they're looking for direction from us. They're looking for commitment. They're looking for, for solidarity. And so that that curdles at a certain point if we don't say where where we are, what our position is clearly. Well, and, you know, this is not done in a vacuum either, is it? I mean, there are ramifications to doing stuff or just to not doing stuff, as the case might be. You know, we just talked uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, about our concern about the Buy America policy. And is not, you know, is Canada not going to get an exemption, especially it comes to the auto industry? And we're talking about some other trade negotiations and the software lumber tariffs. Uh, do they not connect the dots in Ottawa that, listen, uh, the, the Biden administration has already talked about this policy now to do with the, uh, the, uh, the, the boycott. They've talked about the fact that Canada is not really dumping as much money into NATO as they possibly should, especially when it comes to, to troop uh, allocations. Uh, these things are all tied together. And, and I, I'm like, I'd like to think that somebody in Ottawa understands that maybe their inaction on some of these things is causing the reaction from the Americans on others. Mm, yeah. And I mean, it's it's interesting because sometimes you wonder if the U.S. Is, is really kind of paying attention to us at all. And there's a sense that even trying to get attention on key issues around Buy America and the possibility of an exemption for, for Canada, the auto industry, you know, trying to demonstrate to the U.S. the importance of that supply chain relationship and having an integrated supply chain. I don't know about you, but coming out of the meetings, you know, over the last couple of weeks with the prime minister and other ministers in the U.S. talking to people in Washington, I don't get a very warm sense that we've we've had a lot of impact in those conversations. And so, like, I think you're right. Like there's there's broader issues of international trade here. It's not just the relationship with the U.S., although there's an obvious focus or and or just the relationship on China, even though there's an obvious focus since now we're going to have a diplomatic change. But you're right, like those things all fit together. And that's what global relationships are about, right? Like that's, you know, Biden has talked since day one about working together globally, multilateral relations. And although there's, you know, there, to a certain extent, we see protectionism still from the U.S., there's, an, there's you know, an expectation that Canada is going to be a partner to the U.S. And so, yeah, they're, they're waiting for us to be clear on these things. Well, and there's an opportunity here, isn't there? I mean, when you look at, well, a relatively new administration south of the border, I mean, th those relationships or those closer relationships just probably weren't going to exist between Trump and, and the Canadian government. 
but you've got the Biden administration, and they're not warm and fuzzy with Canada, but I mean, you know, they, they're more than willing to talk about this as long as they see some give and take on this side. Uh, there's a change in government in Germany, Angela Merkel stepping down shortly, so, which means there's there's a possibility for shifts in, in within NATO, within the G7, uh, for these sorts of things. Canada's got an opportunity here. Uh, but but they're going to have to step up and show that they're they're worthy of, of that leadership role that they seem to want. Yeah, and that also ends in like gets into discussions around leadership on on climate change and yeah. you know and vaccine supply. There are absolutely issues where again, even though we're not a huge power, we have integrity on certain issues and we're we are able to show leadership on certain issues. And I think there's you know. There's enough um, pressure on the government in Canada. They're in their third term now. What exactly is our approach to foreign policy? What is going to be our strategy going forward in the next year, in the next five years? Because if they want to make progress on some of the issues that Justin Trudeau has said are, are of utmost importance to him, including climate change, those are long-term issues. The partnerships that we'll need globally are long-term things. So let's plant, you know, let's get that foundation down and then see where we go from there. And I know that as you and I've talked about, oftentimes the feeling around Ottawa is, well, foreign affairs are not really that big when it comes to Canadian politics. Well, they are to the foreign nations. <laughs> and and oh, yeah. you know, we're on the international stage right now. And, and we have to, I think, understand that. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, and there are a number of extraneous factors, who probably none the least of which is the uh, conversation between uh, Biden and Putin, which is going to be happening a little bit later on, and uh, see what kind of an impact that's going to have with Ukraine and, and NATO. Uh, much to talk about here, but thank you so much for the time today, though, Doctor, to uh, give us some perspective on this, and clearly we'll be talking about a lot more of this stuff coming anytime soon. Appreciate the time today, though. Thank you, too. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, keeping her eye on the Canadian political scene. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Going to get on a jet airliner like Steve Miller suggesting there. Uh, you got to remember there's some rules and regulations in place. And a reminder for all Canadian travelers, actually, from the uh, federal government, if you want to cross the border and come back into this country, you are still required to use this Arrive Can app. Global's Karen Lieberman has more. While fully vaccinated Canadians who travel to the U.S. and return within 72 hours no longer need to provide a negative PCR test, Arrive Can remains mandatory. The reminder comes too late for some who say they were unaware and are now in quarantine as a result. We have two at-home COVID tests. We do eight days apart um, on a live screen with a, a health professional. And even if they're negative, from my understanding, we are still committed to the 14-day quarantine. Travelers must submit mandatory information, including proof of vaccination, date of travel, and quarantine plan in the app before re-entry into Canada. Karen Lieberman, Global News. Well, I know this impacts uh, our, our listeners here in Hamilton, in, in London as well, and well, frankly, right across the country. Uh, joining us to talk about this and, and the government policy on this, uh, please to welcome to the program Daniel Robert Gooch, who is the president of the Canadian Airport Council. Uh, Daniel, a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Good morning. Glad to be here. And, and thanks for spreading the word about ArriveCan. Uh, filling that out before people get on their plane to Canada is uh, is greatly going to help out. Well, let me ask you about that, because what I'm hearing from folks that do travel on a pretty regular basis uh, is that if there's one word to describe this, it's confusing. Uh, did the government do a decent enough job of explaining what needs to be done here? Uh, well, I, the government moved very quickly to address the variant. Certainly, we recognize that. Um, and we we understand that the goal is to get to 100% arrivals testing. 
Um, but in terms of the implementation of that from, from the airports that have to operationalize this uh, with government, uh, there still are a lot of questions. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it is probably confusing for people. It, it's, I guess, like any other, well, in this particular case, an app, uh, it's supposed to smooth the process out and make it a lot easier to understand uh, because there was, as, as you know, a lot of pushback, of course, uh, you know, with the old plan about, okay, you've got to quarantine, you have to do this, you have to get tested, uh, and on and on it goes. And uh, there was a lot of pushback and people saying, well, we're simply not going to comply with that. Explain to us the benefit of the Arrive Canada app and, and why it's so essential for travelers to, first of all, understand this, and second of all, to utilize it. Well, it's it's required by the government of Canada to provide the government with the information it needs in terms of contact tracing and, 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 and that sort of thing. And so uh, the reason it's important is because if you haven't had it filled out, you're going to be asked to do so. And, and uh, it's it's uh, you know not great for the traveler uh, to be doing that on arrival. It's much better if they do that prior to, to coming to Canada. Um, now, the other aspect of this, of course, is, is the arrivals testing itself. And, and that is really what is causing all of the concern, because the government wants to get up to 100 percent of testing of all travelers. And they'd like for that to be, uh, as we understand, mostly on-site testing done in the airport. Um, they don't like the use of, of, of take-home tests necessarily. But we've heard the minister say that that will be part of the mix. And what we've been saying is it has to be part of the mix, because we can't handle 100 percent uh, of travelers, uh, you know, at the airport um, on site. There, there just isn't the space for the government's testing contractors uh, to be able to test 100% of travelers on site. And, and you know what? You've touched on a sore point here, and it's not just to do with the airline industry or the airline travel. From day one, the government has talked about testing, testing, testing. We've got to continue testing. And, and we haven't done a very good job. We already know that there are millions, I, probably, of, of take-home tests that are available, portable tests that are available in warehouses, and we just haven't distributed them. It's it's an easy tool, and it's a tool that would facilitate an awful lot of this, and uh, we've got to get used to starting to do this. I, I don't even understand why people have a discomfort level with something like that. It, it's going to make their, their travel easier, isn't it? Well, certainly we've been calling for testing to be part of the travel process since early into the pandemic, and, yeah. uh, and it wasn't put into place until uh, earlier this year. Um, now, we have a lot of testing going on right now, uh, and this increase to 100%, given that the reliance is on the PCR tests, uh, the molecular test uh, options, um, uh, we do have some concerns, actually, about testing capacity. Uh, you know, can't, do, do we have an, the ability to test all these individuals um, you know, using that particular test? Because one thing Canada hasn't accepted is a role for the rapid antigen tests, which are, which are less expensive, uh, they're quicker, um, you know, mostly good at, at telling when someone's infectious, but not necessarily as good as we understand the PCR tests in terms of identifying uh, you know, a, a positive traveler. So you know, part of the mix, like everything doesn't necessarily need to be a PCR test. It could be maybe a rapid antigen test if we are testing 100% of travelers on arrival. Uh, you know, maybe we could have a, a rapid antigen test for the pre-departure test. Because we have to remember at this point, we have fully vaccinated travelers. We have fully vaccinated airport workers, fully vaccinated airline workers. We're probably the first sector in Canada that is fully vaccinated. For international travelers, we're asking them to do a test uh, within 72 hours prior to departure, and that's a PCR test. And now we're looking at getting up to 100% eventually of travelers uh, on arrivals. I mean, we have a safe industry here, and, um, uh, and, and there's a lot of testing that's going on. 
Well, I know. We talked to some other folks in the travel industry about this last week, and, and, and the, that was the message. That, look, at, uh, every precaution that is, is possible has been taken here. It, it, it's, it's safe to travel here, and as safe as it is just to get in a car or onto a bus or anything else, if not safer, as you say, because of the protocols that are in place. But what I guess threw a monkey wrench into a lot of this stuff was, was the, uh, the knowledge, of course, of the Omicron variant, and people thinking, oh, my God, here we go again. Uh, and I know the government was quick to react to that with some restrictions and some travel restrictions uh, uh, from African countries and things of this nature. Are you concerned that, that, that that's going to turn some people off what might have been an idea for them to, to use the travel industry during, for instance, the upcoming holiday season? Well, you know, we, we are already hearing stories about people canceling. I had friends of mine who told me that uh, one of my appearances on, uh, on television last uh, week was, was kind of what, did, uh, what did, did it in for him in terms of canceling his trip. But, but I'm not, it's not necessarily they're canceling. I'm sure there are some who are canceling because they're concerned about the Omicron virus. But what I'm hearing is they're canceling because they're concerned about delays and the concerns, uh, you know, that, that the travel experience isn't going to be very comfortable because they're going to have to wait a long time for testing. Um, that, that's unfortunate because this was going to be uh, a strong holiday season. Our airlines are hurting. Our airports are hurting. The tourism industries in the community that rely on, on travelers uh, are hurting. Uh, businesses are closing. Uh, we uh, we understand that the government um, uh, you know needs to take precautions uh, to to protect health, um, uh, but we need them to work with us so that those solutions are workable. Well, and that's part of the problem. And I'm, I'll point a finger here. I, I'll say something that maybe you're not comfortable saying is the government moved way too slow on a lot of this stuff. And you know the job here at Hamilton International Airport. It was, and and London for that matter too. If our friends uh, down the 401, uh, they were way too slow. That meaning the federal government to to reopen the skies for international travel in some of these airports, uh, and that hurts it. I mean, these are you know we talk about the impact that the COVID restrictions have had and the and the you know the lockdowns have had on business. A- airports are business. And there are businesses within those businesses, too. And the longer these things are going to have, have these sorts of, of, of crippling restrictions or government, you know, inaction on this stuff, uh, it's only going to, I guess, you know, make this, this economic recovery that we're all shooting for here that much more difficult to attain. You're right. There's lots of that I couldn't say. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm, saying it, I'm saying it for you, Daniel. <laughs> Well, you know what? I mean, you, you, you raise a good point. We, it was very, we lost so much business because of how long it took to expand international access to airports like Hamilton and London. And there are other airports uh, that are still uh, losing business because, of, because they haven't yeah. gotten that international access back. Windsor is one of them. Uh, you know, Moncton in New Brunswick is another one. We're losing about, those airports are losing about a million dollars a month in revenue uh, the longer those the the longer they are barred from receiving international flights um and it's a competitive disadvantage to them versus an airport that might be down the road uh so yeah, there's been a lot of concerns uh the omicron is is just the latest well, and I know the minister in charge here, Marco Mendocino, who is the uh, public safety minister, says, I think the quote was something along the lines of, the government will never hesitate to put measures in place to protect Canadians at the border. And that's good. That's that's their job. We understand that. Uh, but they have to weigh what those options are, are are for them, and they have to weigh the implications of the policies that they put in place. And we haven't even settled the debate now as to whether cancelling international flights is good or bad or does anything at all to try to curb the spread of the virus. I mean, that's it was a, a reaction that government's made, and they've jumped back onto this again today. And, and you know, we, we don't know whether or not this is going to work. And as a matter of fact, you know, from our healthcare experts and the, and the science table here in Ontario, uh, 
they have mixed opinions as to whether or not these travel restrictions are effective. Uh, you know, the government needs to, to think about that before they just jump in and say, here, you know, in, the, in their zest to say we're doing something, uh, I'd, I'd rather they took an extra second or so and said we're doing the right thing. Well, we have to remember the Prime Minister uh, back in, I believe it was August, um, you know, stood up before a Sunwing aircraft and talked about how Canadians wanted to be able to travel again. Uh, yep. And that was connected to the, the fully vaccinated mandate. So if we go back to this time last year, there was no testing at airports. Nobody was vaccinated. Uh, and there were no restrictions on where aircraft could, could go, even though we were you know, new into the pandemic. Now we have fully vaccinated travelers. We have fully vaccinated airport and airline workers. We're doing a, test, a PCR test 72 hours prior to departure. We are continuing to do randomized arrivals testing, which never stopped. Uh, um, so you know, how, how, where does this go? That's uh, the question a lot of us are asking, and we'll see how the government responds. They've been uh, seeing, you know, they're, they're going to get more information today, for, as we say, from the science table, and, and hopefully that's going to open their eyes to some of the realities here. Daniel, uh, we will monitor this situation. I hate to use that trite phrase that the government's use all the time, but it's about time that, uh, that we had some, some positive action here right, with the understanding of the implications. Thank you so much for your time today to shed some light on this. And I think you've given our listeners a much different perspective on what's happening here. Thank you. Uh, I mean, airports are standing ready to, to work with government on this, and we, uh, you know, we appreciate your attention. You betcha. Thanks again, Daniel. Daniel Robert Gooch, who is the president of the Canadian Airport Council. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The federal government is soon going to be releasing a volume of residential school records that have been, and now it's been criticized for withholding these uh, from the National Archives Center for quite some time right now. A new Democrat MP, Charlie Angus, says the federal government has walked hand in hand with the Catholic Church in holding back documentation and now understands that relationship has to change. Once we started to find the, the mass number of unmarked graves of dead children, um, the government realized that they had to start taking this issue more seriously. This is not going to go away. It's not going to be swept under the carpet. This is Canada's historic reckoning. So those third-party agreements with the various church orders, null and void. History is calling for justice. Well, and we'll see just uh, how far down that road they're going to go. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Dr. Don Lavo Harvard, who is the director of the First People's House of Learning at Trent University. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the program today. Good morning. I, we still, I think, have our minds the picture of the, the Prime Minister a couple of months ago uh, after his uh, apology for not showing up for the, the Truth and Reconciliation Day, uh, saying well, we've turned over all relevant documents. Uh, clearly, that's not the case. Is this a, a good first step in that right direction? I mean, this has really been a long time coming. And and I do find it appalling, and I think everybody else, you know, in the area and across the country is is a little concerned that the leader of our, our nation um, doesn't seem to know what they had in their possession or didn't. And I think, you know, now that a light has been shone on this and now that they're aware that those documents have been in their possession and because of those agreements that, yes, they may have been negotiated with the former conservative government, this is the government who is responsible now. This is a government who now has the power to do the right thing and hand over those documents. And so, you know, let's hope that this is really a positive sign that they are finally seeing the light, that this, as you said, it's it's not going to go away. It's not going to be forgotten. Um, in previous years, you know, we had seen it would be a little blip in the media and then everybody would move on to something else. But I think the sustained attention on this shows 
that Canadians aren't going to let this just be swept back under the rug. What's the holdup? And I, I, I'm, I guess I'm kind of rhetorically asking you to get inside the heads of the government, and I'm, I apologize for that. Uh, but but as, as MP Angus just talked about in the clip we played just before he joined us, they seem to be walking hand in hand with the Catholic Church here. Neither one of them seem to want to be forthcoming with all of these things. Clearly, there's going to be documentation here that proves that both the federal government of those days and the Catholic Church and, and frankly, the Anglican Church, who also ran some of these facilities, are, 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 you know, egregiously culpable in a lot of this stuff. We already know that. We don't know to the degree. But, I mean, I, I can't understand the reticence now by simply saying we want to hold back on this. We already know that, the, the, to use that old phrase, the jig is up. We know what, 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 a lot of what happened here, and we know why it happened. Uh, we have a right to have that, that well, that truth, isn't it? before we can deal with anything to do with reconciliation. Well, and I think this is, this is really what it's all about, is that we have to have the truth. And to you know, have begun and completed a Truth and Reconciliation Commission where literally thousands of documents that would have been able to disclose the truth, what ha- that would have revealed the truth, were withheld. Um, and and uh, because of some you know, third-party agreements with the Church, and, and to be very clear, it is the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the United Church, when they were in that original class action, you know, they, I stood there and I listened to those, the leaders of those churches apologize, and I listened to the leader of the Catholic Church in Canada on that same day give a speech where he started talking about hockey on the night before, and a refusal, you know, you never heard the word, any kind of formal apology from them on that day, and I think that spoke volumes in terms of a lack of willingness to to acknowledge, to own, to to really um, confess guilt and and try to begin that process of atonement for what happened. And I think that's you know now the Canadian government has finally realized that you know, they can. It's it's going to be. I think it's going to be shameful. I think the degree to which they were, as you said, sort of in, in bed with each other. The degree to which they were jointly responsible for what happened in those schools, the degree to which they were both well aware of what was happening in the schools, is going to be very shameful. It's it's going to be very hard to see. And I think, you know, there was a certain reticence to wanting to own up to that. And, I mean, even the fact that when those negoti- when those agreements were originally made, that, you know, the Catholic Church was, was essentially let off of their fair share of responsibility for this, you know, as we've heard with the, you know, 35 million that was supposed to be raised and you know, well, they tried hard. Well, baloney, you know, we, we saw at the same time they were raising money for church roofs and things like that. And so I personally, I think that it is going to be very shameful when it comes forward, but I think it's important. It's critical. Like you said, if we're going to have reconciliation, we really have to know the truth and if we're, if we're going to be able to move forward. Otherwise, there will always be that mistrust. There will always be this shameful history, this, this, that, this hidden past. Let me ask you about the ramifications of, of them dragging their heels on this. Uh, we already know that uh, that a number of, of uh, Indigenous leaders are going to be heading over to the Vatican and, and meeting with the Pope, we're told. And that meeting, we're told, is imminent sometime this month. How can you have a meaningful dialogue about what's going on or what has gone on here in the absence of this information? Well, and I think that is precisely what people have come to realize, is how can you have a meaningful dialogue without the truth, without the release of those records? How can you have 
a genuine apology if you're still hiding all of those records. And everybody's well aware of it now. You know, there's no point trying to pretend that they're not there. It's, it's very clear. And so to turn them over is not only the right thing to do, it's really critical here for the federal government to recognize, I mean, this is the government of Canada. They are, should not be you know, beholden to any you know, organization within Canada for those kinds of agreements. I mean, if the government of Canada can't stand up and do the right thing, then they are supposed to be the ultimate authority in terms of you know, making those kind of legal decisions here within Canada, because this was not part of some international ruling where they could have argued that there was some sort of internationally binding documents that were above them. I mean, this is, those people sitting in those cabinets are the ones who have the power to make these things happen or not happen. And that's what really matters. I, I know that uh, Mark Miller, who's the uh, Crown Indigenous Relations Minister yesterday, uh, said that the, the delay here was because, uh, I think the phrase he used was obligations the federal government had with entities of the Catholic Church, which just, again, underscores the fact that they're complicit here. It, it just doesn't seem to make any sense. We're, we're going to be watching with great interest to see just how they're going to react and just how much of this information is going to be forthcoming. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for your perspective on this. Uh, we're, we're going to stay on this, and I know other uh, media outlets are going to stay on this too until the truth finally does come out and we can make some some honest and fair uh, evaluations and, and, and move on from there. But uh, we'll stay in touch, and certainly this is uh, the first of many more conversations, I hope. Well, thank you. And as you said, you know, I think this isn't going away. And so it's good that they finally realize that they have to address it openly. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Uh, Dr. Don Lavelle, Harvard, of course, director of the First People's House of Learning at uh, Trent University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Merck has announced that hey, plans now to manufacture its oral antiviral COVID-19 drug right here in Canada. The company has invested $19 million to scale up production of its pill facility. And uh, this is in Whitby, Ontario, of course, uh, just uh, east of Toronto. Federal Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne calls the event a milestone in rebuilding the country's biomanufacturing capacity. So for me, this is good news for the workers. This is good news for the life sciences sector here in Ontario. And it's good news for all Canadians because now we can look to have a growing and stronger biomanufacturing sector to ensure the health and safety of Canadians. Well, it's something that uh, a lot of people were actually berating the government for, for letting this slip away. Uh, biomedical uh, part of uh, our economy just seemed to have evaporated over the last number of years. Uh, is it even a possibility now that we could revive that and put new air and life into this? I want to bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University in Hamilton. Uh, Marvin, great to have you back in the program. Hope you're doing well these days. I'm great. Glad to be with you, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about this. And I, I, I want... I. I'm glad you could join us because I want to get some historical perspective. Because uh, back in the day, uh, Canada was uh, doing quite well when it came to biomedical and and this sort of thing. Uh, and and we kind of let it slip through our fingers. Uh, was it by accident or evolution? What actually happened back in those days? Maybe maybe that explanation could help set the scene for what may be happening next. Well, you ask an interesting question that I don't think has an easy answer, but the basic challenge we had was that you and I got healthier. So the need the need to have companies producing pills and vaccines and injectables at our fingertips was just not as great. And as other parts of the world developed their capabilities, they basically built new plants, bigger plants, more economical plants. 
the question the government had is, do we continue to buy from the Canadian manufacturer, who's maybe using an older plant, maybe is not as efficient, and maybe whose prices for some of these things are are higher than the international. And what difference does it really make where we get, let's say, penicillin from? What matters is its efficacy. So so why why spend the money? Now, there was a big company in Toronto or in the Toronto area called Connaught Labs, and it uh, provided a lot of these things, but it also required some significant government subsidies. So you actually have to go back to the time of Brian Mulroney, he was uh, prime minister, and the government, as it always is, it always is looking for where where can I cut some money and where can I save some money because I have these other priorities over here that need money, and and they said, look, why are we paying this money for cannot? We haven't needed their products in a big way for a long time. We can get what we need on the open market, so let's let's let this go away. And uh, remember, we've gone through many prime ministers since, including nearly 10 years of Stephen Harper, and it looked like the decision was a good one because no one had expected a pandemic in our backyard. And then when we did have the pandemic in our backyard and we needed to get vaccines, we didn't have that capability in Canada. So we went to the world market and we did order them. God bless Justin Trudeau. He actually placed orders with eight different companies for vaccines, but because we weren't the uh, home country of those places, we went a little further down on the priority list. We got them, but we got them a month or two later than we would have liked. And, and there are some people who've never forgiven Justin for that. So, and you're right. I mean, this is, I, I love people love to hang this all on Brian Mulroney, but and it's one of a lot of decisions governments make at sure. the time. I mean, one of the other things that the Mulroney administration is, hey, we don't need all these trains anymore. Let's sell off some of the other uh, rail lines. Uh, and, you know, and we've got some great railroads all over the country right now, but uh, now we need trains and they're not available. So hindsight's always twenty twenty, and it right. is what it is. But how difficult is it, be, is it going to be, Marvin, to revive that industry? I, kn- I know over the last year the government has made some announcements, including at this plant in Whitby, yep. and, and the, even the old Connaught Labs now where they're thinking, you know what, we can breathe new life into this. But those, as you mentioned, those other places in Germany and other places are, are doing quite well, thank you. Do they, do they really want another player? And are these large companies looking to relocate in places like Canada? Yeah, so let's pick that in a couple of ways, Bill. Obviously, these large pharmaceutical companies, easy for me to say, pharmaceutical companies are global in their reach. Uh, and do they need more capacity? Most of them would have said, no, we've got really good plants around the world positioned where we think are in the right places. So we're not really looking to add a lot of capacity. Now, if if you, Canada, want to spend some money and you want to create some capacity in your own country, that's great. But keep in mind, you may have to continue to subsidize this when we don't have pandemics, when we don't have needs for these things, to keep that trained staff and that workplace on standby. And if you don't mind, let me just move over to this announcement uh, in Whitby. Uh, This was an announcement about a drug that is being produced by Merck. It's called Molnupiravir, and uh, it is supposed to be an at-home COVID treatment. It is not a vaccine, but if you are diagnosed with a form of COVID and there is some concern that you might develop some significant symptoms, this is a course of medication, a pill that you would take over multiple days. And if you take it, the hope is that it would reduce your, your symptoms. So um, Health Canada, as well as uh, in the United States, the, uh, the, the um, FDA, Federal Food and Drug Administration there, have approved this temporarily under emergency use orders. Um, 
It was not a clear-cut slam dunk. When they did their first trials of this drug, it was 50% effective in reducing the symptoms. As they expanded the search and did more tests and more volunteers, it turns out it's only 30%. So there's a marginal impact. Yes, bravo that $19 million has been spent in Whitby, and bravo that this drug is going to be produced there. But this is only really good news for as long as there is COVID. And, of course, keep in mind, the, the, hope, the hope is to, to make COVID significantly less important on the world stage. This might be important if the, drug, if, excuse me, if, the drug, if the disease becomes endemic, meaning there's always a little COVID in the background. Oh, you've got COVID. Here, let me write you a prescription for molnupiravir, and you can take that and make it go away. But in terms of a, a big impact on this, and, and I'm sorry to sound like I'm contradicting Francois-Philippe Champagne, um, I don't think this is that big of a deal. $19 million sounds like a lot of money to you and I, but it really isn't uh, on something like the global life sciences scale. Uh, glad that Merck decided to do this. Glad that Merck said, look, this is a company that does top quality work. They're trustworthy. They're in a reliable country. So let's give them this contract. That's great. And of course, this contract is going to supply these drugs to places like the European Union, the United Kingdom, parts of the United States. That's even better because now those foreign dollars will flow into our economy. But this is not as if they were making Viagra at that facility. At this point, it's a marginal drug which has marginal uses, may not even be around in two or three years. They may have something better at that point. So I'm not going to curse the darkness. I'm glad they're doing this, but it's not that big of a thing on the world stage. Well, I'm looking at some of the research on this, and I, I got to tell you, Marvin, I'm a little surprised directly that they, they got the thumbs up from places like Health Canada and others. Uh, because as they did the testing on this, uh, you know, which is the required protocol, of course, right. uh, there's some concern that it could actually cause the virus to mutate. Yes. Uh, and there's also the possibility of birth defects, because yes. apparently that happened. In, you know, they tested these in rats, I guess. I know those were very high doses, and that's all part of the testing process, I guess. Uh, I don't know if those are red flags, but they're certainly caution flags, aren't they? Well, it's not, it's not a perfect solution. So if we're fighting a pandemic, we need all the weapons we can get at our disposal to fight the pandemic. Clearly, doctors are being cautioned, you know, don't prescribe this to women, certainly do not prescribe this to a woman who might be trying to become pregnant or is pregnant in some ways. This could affect them. They want them to only be prescribed for people who have uh, other sorts of illnesses that could cause a, a, a severe reactions to COVID. In other words, if you're a normal, healthy person, I don't think you're going to need this drug. But if you're someone who may be having some other comorbidity factors, as we call them, maybe we'll give it. So, you know, it's it's fine. It, it does its thing. Let's use it carefully. Let's use it sparingly. Um, this is not a full-blown approval. Again, it's emergency use. While we're fighting this, uh, many people think that the Merck drug could be replaced in a year or two, by something a little more stable and with fewer side effects. We know, for instance, even Pfizer's got a pill form that it's testing to see what impact it has. So I'm thrilled that it's coming here. I'm thrilled that it's going to make a difference in Whitby for a couple of years. I'm hoping it's going to turn the drug industry's attention to Canada as a potential place to cite other things. Now, Justin Trudeau signed a deal with a uh, a company that has a vaccine. They want to build a vaccine facility in Montreal. I think that's great news as well. So it's, it's not, it's not, none of this is bad news, but it's also just marginal news. And, and the big players at the moment, they've got their factories located in other places in the world, and I don't think they're planning to give them up to come to Canada.
I, I guess to put it in perspective, and I think you reminded of, uh, of this in a previous conversation, the, the vaccination uh, industry was not eradicated by those decisions made by previous governments. I mean, we are still producing vaccines here. Uh, they're just not coronavirus vaccines. I, I, and they get shipped off uh, to third Africa and places like that, and for diphtheria and things of this nature. So th- there is an industry here, mm-hmm. but how difficult is it going to be to grow that, and especially with those vaccination industries? Uh, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with COVID in the future. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, the experts are telling us we'll probably never eradicate it, but how much of a threat is going to be going down the road, we're not sure. But it just seems to be this was the area of choice to say, hey, how come America's doing this? Germany's doing this. Uh, it, it, India's doing this, for God's sakes. Why can't we, uh, you know, rebirth uh, the, the, this industry here? Uh, but it kind of sounds like places like, as you say, Pfizer and others are pretty well entrenched in where they are, and uh, they're not looking to expand. Well, you know, Bill, I have an old expression that you should fish where the fish are. And so if I'm a, a pharmaceutical company, am I going to locate in a country of 38 million people or in a country of 335 million people or in the case of India, a country of 1.4 billion people? There's just a lot more demand in those places. And I can take a little overrun of something in India and ship it to Canada as a marginal cost for that market because it's so small. And that's that is the problem. While Canada is one of the ten largest economies in the world, and we're certainly a major player on the world stage from a trade standpoint, in terms of a demand for whatever it happens to be, whether it's polio vaccines or it's, it's uh, any kind of a drug you might produce, we're really kind of small potatoes out there. So Germany is two and a half times our size. England is larger than us. Where would you put a plant? And, and of course, you're not going to put one in every country because that's inefficient. So you're going to try to put a larger plant someplace where you've got a great domestic market, and then you can get easy access to other places. And so that's the problem. And I, I'll tell you this, Bill, if we wanted to have that vaccine capability here in Canada, we would have to do what we did with Connaught Labs. In other words, we would say, okay, you build it, and we will guarantee uh, uh, an amount that we're going to spend every year. I'll just make up a number and say $50 million. We'll buy $50 million from you every year. And I guarantee you as well that there would be some years in which we don't need $50 million of whatever it is you produce. But here, you keep the change. So we'll buy $20 million, and there's $30 million to keep the capability there. And this is what uh, previous administrations started to bristle at. We weren't buying all of their output. We didn't need all of their output, but we wanted to keep it in, for lack of a better term, hot standby mode so that if we did need it one day, we'd have it. Well, there was a cost to keeping this in hot standby mode, and eventually the government says, I've got better uses for that money than just keeping it for you folks, Um, and that's why we made the decision we did. We can reverse that decision, but for you and I as a taxpayer, we'd have to get used to a story that says, you know, last year we had contracted for $50 million, but we only actually bought $20 million worth of goods, and we told them to keep the change. If you as a taxpayer are happy with that, we can establish that for you. And, and that process that you just outlined is is going to continue to happen. I mean, governments are always going to be, you know, hit with the austerity bug and say we need to right. cut, cut, cut here because we need to keep taxes low. So that's going to happen, sadly. And there's a lot of very viable businesses that, that are going to suffer as a result of this. But the other thing I wanted to ask you about that, Marvin, is have we not learned our lesson yet that uh, we're not going to become economically viable and, and prosperous uh, by trying to replicate what something else is doing? You know, in other words, you know, and, and I think the Hamilton area learned that years ago when we were looking for our economic uh, characterization 
uh, you know, we wanted to be like RIM in Waterloo. Well, no, they're doing that already. We don't need another RIM. Uh, we don't need, uh, you know, another Silicon Valley. Uh, and you have to find your niche. And and, right. and and maybe the vaccination industry and this biotech thing that they're talking about right now is not Canada's niche. Maybe there are other things. I mean, advanced manufacturing techniques and things of this nature uh, as you're moving into the 21st century. Trying to, trying to replicate what somebody else is doing doesn't seem to be uh, to be a very viable way of, of creating that economic stability. Well, it, it may not be. So I, I think what we have to get used to is the idea that government has to experiment. They've got to try some different things. Now, for years, Canada on the world stage was considered a world leader in telecommunications. Why? Yeah. We had a relatively small population over a gigantic country, the world's second largest country from an area standpoint. It wasn't hard for me to call you when you lived down the street from me, but how do we make a phone call to Innovate? How do we make a, a phone call to Iqaluit? How do, we, how do we do that? Well, of course, we'd have to beam you over a satellite and use microwave technology, and we did it. We found a way to make it work, and there were other nations in the world that said, hey, can we get some of that from you to solve our problems? So, you know, we, we do have some natural areas that we do very well. And if I'm the government, I've got to find that those areas and support them. And if something comes, if there is another BlackBerry that gets born here in Hamilton, we would be crazy not to support it. But I call that the hit-by-lightning theory. In other words, yeah, it could happen. It's not likely to happen. But if you happen to have one of these things drop on your doorstep, then you move heaven and earth to support it and help it grow and prosper and go from there. Uh, and, that's, and that's what you have to try to do. Keep searching, keep experimenting, and then every now and again when the right formula comes in your lap, you're, you're going to go from there. And the same here is with biomedicine. I'll give you another quick example, Bill. Hamilton's yep. economy today is education and health. Those are our two biggest employers. Hamilton Health Sciences, I think, is now 11,000 employees. St. Joe's, I think, is six or 7,000 employees. Lots of people working there. Suppose tomorrow they found a drug that killed um, you know, brain cancer. You take this drug and brain cancer goes away. Great that that's happened, but we're not going to build a pill factory here. Those drugs would be contracted to someone who has an existing facility elsewhere in the world where, where they can easily manufacture it. They've got the economies of scales. Great that it was made in Hamilton, but it doesn't mean that necessarily we're going to establish the pill factory. So we have to go into this with the correct expectations. We want to support this stuff. If we happen to have that opportunity, great, but don't expect it's always going to come your way. Well, and, and we've already seen examples of that, haven't we, where th there's been some great medical advances, uh, technology advances, at, well, at McMaster and other places, uh, and we didn't monetize them. Somebody else has picked them up and, and, and benefited, and, you know, great that it was it started here. Well, even even as you mentioned, the telecommunications, you know, Nortel was one of the leaders in that, yeah. and, and we all know what happened at Nortel, uh, but the patents and the technology, and well, Huawei, I, I guess, took advantage of an awful lot of that stuff. So, you know, we can be proud of the fact that it was developed here, but uh, we've, we've got to develop business models to make these things prosper. Right. Well, even the BlackBerry story, Bill, at one time, Blackberries yeah. were more than half of the smartphones being purchased in the world, and today they don't even register. It's, it is Samsung and Huawei that leads that apples in third place. Uh, nothing stays permanent. Things keep coming and going. So you don't hit your wagon to one place. You, you work with different ones. Now, I, I think it's great when I look at something like DeFasco and Stelco. These are companies, uh, technological companies, and don't, don't kid yourself, lots of technology at DeFasco and Stelco who've been here over 100 years I don't want to do anything to undermine them. Now, I want them to be a good 
a community participant, and if they are you know, doing some pollution or something like that, of course, we don't want that to continue, but we want to try to help them so that they can stay here forever and ever and ever and maybe attract others. Same thing here goes with the medical things. I'm glad that this factory in Whitby has got this contract. I hope it works well. I hope that if Merck develops another pill for COVID that is even more effective and with fewer side effects, they may get that contract too. But a $19 million investment, no one should kid themselves that billions of dollars are coming our way. It's a nice little vote of confidence, but it doesn't change too much. That's the reality check I think we needed. Marvin, as always, thanks for this. Really appreciate the time today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Take care. Marvin Ryder from the uh, DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.